Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I catch up with Tyler Henritzi, Head of Acquisitions Americas for Blackstone Real Estate. Tyler provides a look into the company's thematic investment approach, explaining how Blackstone's allocation of capital to traditional real estate sectors is informed by evolving trends in technology and shifts in demographics, using the industrial, biotech, life sciences, and entertainment sectors as examples. Enjoy the conversation. So Tyler, thank you so much for joining. Where are you zooming in from today? I am in New York and I am back in the office. Um, and I, based on uh, your screen, it looks like uh, you're in a better spot than I am. I see the trees in the background. So you must be in Park City. Yeah, I'm still out here. Um, I've, been, I've, I've been here now, uh, I guess, eight months since the beginning of COVID. So it's, it's starting to feel like home. Um, but we'll, we'll talk more about that in the new, the new demographic reshuffling that's happening in a bit. But can you maybe just start by giving people uh, like a bit of your background, what your role is at Blackstone, and more about Blackstone and its real estate business. Sure. So I've been with Blackstone for almost 17 years. I joined as an analyst. I've done a little bit of everything, but um, spent the entirety of my time working within our equity business within the real estate team. Today, I, um, I lead our acquisition effort in the Americas. So essentially, uh, my team helps identify new investment opportunities for all three of our equity-oriented strategies, which is our um, opportunity fund business, our core plus business, and our private REIT. So we have um, really one investment team that focuses on all of those strategies, and um, each with a uh, very distinguished uh, risk and return uh, orientation. And, um, um, you know, never thought I'd be at Blackstone for as long as I have been. Um, you know, you, you and I overlapped for a brief period of time before you went on to bigger and better things, but um, I'm still here and still having fun. Yeah, it's, it's awesome to see just obviously how Blackstone has grown. It was, I guess, 12 years ago that I was, uh, I was working for you and, and everyone at Blackstone. It, it's like, it just continued this, this enormous growth, which is awesome to see. And that actually kind of, uh, leads me to ask my, my next question, which is, in some ways, one of the most inspiring deals for when we started Fifth Wall was when we saw what Blackstone did with BTS, right? So we were like, wow, this massive you know, financial powerhouse that is all this real estate distribution is investing in this emerging real estate prop tech company. And how transformative can that be for their business? And to some extent, that was the spark behind what ultimately became Fifth Wall. But I'd love to hear how you at Blackstone Real Estate think about technology as being core both to your operations, but also core to like your future capital allocation and your strategy as a business. Sure. Listen, I think every business has to be really honest with themselves about what you do. And um, there are very few businesses that are good at doing everything. Um, At our core, what we're trying to do within the real estate business is be the best real estate investor and asset manager on behalf of our LPs as we can be. But I, I think probably seven or eight years ago, it started to become increasingly apparent that while real estate was reacting and evolving to technology slower than a lot of the rest of the world, it would not be immune. And 
Um, I felt as well as some of my other partners felt that it was really important for us, even in our core business, our core business of investing in real estate and managing real estate, that we needed to be more in tune with what was happening in terms of emerging technologies that could impact real estate. And it, it could be traditional type real estate platforms or offerings that were just shifting um, consumer behavior or impacting some of the traditional real estate asset classes. But it was, it was our belief that we could not be successful long-term if we didn't have a better finger on the pulse for what those trends were and how those technologies may impact um, which asset classes or geog geographies that we want to invest in. And I'm, I'm sure we'll jump into it, but our, um, you know, even our allocation of capital to traditional real estate sectors is very heavily informed by uh, uh, evolving trends in technology and uh, therefore evolving uh, uh, shifts in demographics. And a lot of what we're really trying to do is just get in front of those uh, uh, tailwinds and get out of the way of certain headwinds that are negatively or positively impacting different real estate sectors or geographies. And I think when you really peel back the layer, our bullishness or bearishness on most asset classes can be explained through a lens of technology. And so our investment in VTS, which was small and not core to our overall business, was really born out of a belief that we needed to have a better finger on the pulse as to how our core business was evolving and how technology was impacting it so that we could be as good of an investor as we, we strive to be. Yeah. And, and I think the way it sounds like you're looking at it is this kind of holistic view of like, when people think of technology as colliding with the real estate industry, oftentimes their minds just go to like prop tech and there are like obvious many examples of prop tech companies that have been very successful. And, but the way I think about technology, and it sounds like the way Blackstone does is kind of like, there is technology that makes the business of buying and operating real estate better, easier, faster, more efficient. And that is like prop tech. Um, then there's technology that actually in its application can kind of reimagine a particular business model in real estate, right? So those are kind of like the Airbnbs, the co-workings, the co-livings, where it's not really pure technology, but it's technology-enabled business model transformation. And then the third largest is how are like macro secular trends in the technology industry impacting the relative demand for real estate? And I know that in that last category, as Blackstone obviously has you know, been very influential in industrial real estate in the US, that to me feels like a category almost for whom e-commerce disruption of retail has been existential, right? It, it, is, it is an explainer, it is, a, it is the driver that has driven so much of industrial growth. How did you think about when you were making your various investments in the industrial sector, how much did like technology analysis and macro trends around e-commerce inform that? Uh, initially, very little. So in, in 2011, um, I, there was a lot of disruption and dislocation in, in all real estate asset classes. And, and we saw an opportunity to buy industrial assets at what we thought were just historically cheap valuations. But as we started to see what was happening to rental rate growth, we started to notice that rents were growing faster than GDP. And for a long time, industrial rents pretty much grew exactly in line with GDP. So we really started to dig into that and trying to understand what was happening. Um, it was from a secular standpoint, above and beyond just sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, an improving economy that could explain why rents were 
really growing well in excess of GDP. And as we dug into it, we started to understand and learn a little bit more about supply chains and learn about what it means to buy a package online versus to buy that same good in a store. And what you learn is that that package you buy online has to be repositioned um, multiple times more than it would need to be if it was just bought in a traditional brick and mortar retail store. And the simple takeaway from that is that one good bought online requires more logistic space than if it was bought through a traditional retail channel. And I think that really grabbed our attention and it took something that was initially a, a real estate thesis and, and uh, sort of focused our attention on what could be a technology driven tailwind that today seems sort of self-evident. Like I, I don't think anybody's winning any awards for saying today that, you know, industrial is, is supported by technology. But in 2011 and 12, when we first started noticing this, um, we, we really got very aggressive in buying industrial first in the U.S. and then elsewhere around the world. And we really started to study closer and closer how the supply chain in and around e-commerce was evolving. And so while our first acquisitions were uh, kind of indiscriminate in the industrial space, today we've gotten much more focused in terms of um, last mile facilities, some of which are, are older, but are more infill. Uh, maybe they, they might be smaller, uh, but it's the type of real estate that is exactly one step ahead of where various e-commerce users want to be, whether it be geographically speaking or, uh, or, or from a physical standpoint. And from our standpoint, you know, that, that this trend of consumers buying online is not slowing down. COVID has dramatically accelerated it. I think online sales are up something like 60%. And we're seeing um, in every way those tailwinds translate into rental rate increases and asset value appreciation for industrial assets. And um, I, I think it's 100% a technology-oriented oriented, uh, and driven real estate thesis that um, we have been uh, extremely bullish on for a long time. I think globally we've bought in excess of a billion square feet of industrial and logistics space in the last 10 years. And... Um, and we continue to be fairly constructive in terms of the fundamentals and how e-commerce will continue to drive those. It's a really interesting insight, what you just mentioned, that you know, for a given good sold, use the word, the amount of uh, times that good needs to be repositioned, which, which I think in, in the way you're defining it means like the number of times that good has to flow through physical space to affect the same outcome, right? So let's just take a toothbrush that someone's buying in a CVS the amount of physical space consumed by that toothbrush getting to that store so that that consumer can buy it and affect that sale versus someone buying it on Amazon, it's much larger because it's happening across all these, this massive logistics network, right? It's going through multiple sorting facilities and distribution facilities to, to actually get to the, the customer. And I'm curious how that intersects with like this kind of orthogonal philosophy I have, which is like at the same time that you know, certain kinds of like commercial activity are requiring more space. The importance of the location of that space is kind of diminishing, meaning like in retail, it's like location, location, location. So you're only going to drive a short distance to your pharmacy. But the, even though it's consuming more space in the purchase of that same toothbrush, location still matters, but it's more regionally important, right? It's, it's, more, it's, it's more diffuse. It's not as specific to a given location. Do you think that's a driver here as well, that like picking these big important regions is equally important now and equally informed by technology assumptions? Well, well I think what you're getting at is something I call um, space arbitrage. So 
um, you know, the traditional thinking was you, you would think about real estate asset classes in and of themselves, that retail was separate and distinct from industrial and industrial was separate and distinct from office. And I think increasingly users think about space a little more fluid and they're looking for arbitrages to exploit given the different cost of those different spaces. And increasingly, you can accomplish similar utilities out of um, uh, the, you know, the same spaces across different um, um, asset classes. And so in a lot of ways, industrial space today is just modern retail space. It's where goods are being bought and sold through. Um, but if you want to buy something online from Louis Vuitton, does that retailer need to have space rented on Fifth Avenue for $4,000 a foot? Or do they just need a really great warehouse in the Bronx that they can deliver uh, you know, same day to the consumer for um, at, a, at a lower cost you know, per foot? Obviously, they have delivery costs they've got to take into account. But um, you know, traditional thinking was that you thought about each individual real estate asset class in and of itself, and you thought about the utility of what that asset class uh, did and who it serviced kind of within the confounds of just that asset class. And I, I think what you're seeing um, with industrial is a lot of, um, uh, of the flow of retail goods is moving out of traditional bricks and mortars and it's moving into a different supply chain, which is industrial. Um, but it's, it's kind of the same utility. Goods, goods moving from um, you know, producer to the consumer, it's just moving in a different format. And I, I think trying to you know, be honest with yourself about how those uh, shifts are, are taking place and getting in front of them um, or, or equally out of, out of the way of, of, of if you're on the wrong side of those trends is, is important. And uh, I think that's kind of what you were hitting on. Yeah, it's like, it feels like so many asset classes, the, the hard lines between them have become like pretty blurry. Like I, I think about the concept of like ghost kitchens, right? These kind of kitchens that do not have a physical location. Like there's nowhere you can go and actually dine in at the restaurant. But what they are monetizing is this massive growth in on-demand food delivery. And so it's, it's kind of like you've abstracted the concept of food production and a restaurant. So there's a restaurant that you can order from on Uber Eats that you can't go to, but it comes right to you. And that kind of blurs the line between retail and industrial because a restaurant's a factory. It's making food. It's making finished products for you. But it's also a retail store in the way we typically think about it. But a ghost kitchen is really just the factory with a distribution network that's Uber Eats. And what I would say is, you know, anyone that's been a real estate investor knows the term replacement cost, which is, you know, the idea of what would it cost to replicate the, the exact asset you're buying new. And that's still relevant. But I would also encourage people to focus on replacement utility, because if the utility can be replaced um, without necessarily rebuilding that same physical space, uh, it, it's worth being mindful of. Or if it can be, um, if that utility can be uh, accomplished uh, in a different format. And, you know, what I would, you know, a simple example would be New York City hotels. Um, you know, the cost to replicate the Waldorf Astoria is probably a million and a half dollars per key. You know, maybe, maybe two million per key to literally rebuild on Park Avenue, that exact physical structure. But I'm not sure I would take a lot of comfort um, that the utility of a nice place to stay in New York can't be replicated for something less than that. There are select service hotels that were built at a fraction of that cost that had new modern rooms. They might not have had all the meeting and convention space that the Waldorf had, might not have been right on Park Avenue, but it had a replacement utility that was attractive to the consumer at a fraction of the cost. And you can take it a step further and say, well, are there certain 
um, real estate uses that can be replicated through technology, period. Um, and, and how does that impact demand for physical space? That's, that's clearly something that um, people are talking about a lot now that we're in the middle of COVID. And you think about also you know, like Instacart and what it's done to grocery stores, right? So grocery stores, obviously incredibly threatened by Amazon and what Amazon is proposing to do to grocery stores. It's a real threat. And it's like what Instacart did is almost reduce grocery stores to distribution facilities or like pick and pack facilities, right? And that's what's happening. Instacart shoppers are in the stores picking the items and the consumer is never interacting with that store. The only asset that store has is its proximity within say a 15 minute drive of the end consumer. It's so interesting to think about like how these very lightweight business model shifts can affect the replacement cost of what is today very valuable real estate in an entirely new use. And, and you know, one of the other reasons that we've liked industrial and feel like there's still a lot of room for rents to continue to grow is that it is in most markets, the cheapest space available on a per pound basis. Most of the time when people are modeling a real estate deal, you think about rental rate increases just on a percentage basis, you know, 3% increase in rental rates. Well, no one really steps back and says, well, wait a second, the end consumer doesn't really think about it necessarily in terms of percentage increases. They're probably thinking about it more in terms of what is their total cost. And industrial rents relative to almost any other form of real estate is cheap on a per, you know, price per foot basis. Um, you know, rents in industrial could be $7 a foot. There are retail rents that could be $500 a foot. I think that makes industrial almost by definition less susceptible to disruption because your um, that space arbitrage that we're talking about, it's much harder to undercut the utility that industrial provides as just a you know, raw storage space. Clearly, you've got to make it up elsewhere again, delivery and logistics costs. But it, I think we like as well sort of industrial's relative positioning it within the confines of all asset classes as just cheap space. Right, right. And I guess thinking about another asset class that I know you've been very active in, which is life sciences. Um, obviously, that's a space that's probably poised for what was already poised for growth, but now post COVID is poised for more. How do you think about the growth opportunities there and what geographies stand out to you as you know, particularly opportunistic in life sciences? Sure. I mean, if I were to summarize my job simplistically and my team's job, it's really trying to identify some of these mega trends that we're touching on that are either technology oriented or demographic oriented and get in front of them. And, um, you know, if, if, we can, if we can identify three or four of them at any point in time and invest a lot of capital before they're widely understood, or even if we're just a little bit ahead of the market, I think there's a lot of value we can create for our investors. And so five or six years ago, we were studying the life science um, um, office space, which is effectively, they look like traditional office buildings, but they're built out slightly differently to cater towards lab, uh, pharmaceutical, biotechnology companies, and the research that happens with, with, within those companies. And we, in, in, in studying the space, we uh, came across a company called Biomed. At the time, it was trading at a, a worse cap rate than its traditional office peers, despite the fact that their tenants were uh, incredibly large, you know, very large, very healthy pharmaceutical companies, huge market caps, names you could hardly pronounce. They were growing like a weed, and most of the space was concentrated in these research hubs in Cambridge, um, outside of Boston and South San Francisco and Seattle and San Diego. And there was something about a, the network effect that these 
micro locations created for drug discovery and research. And we felt like this was a business that was fundamentally mispriced. It had incredible tailwinds from a technology perspective or a drug and research perspective. There was more and more funding going into the space. Uh, and, and this was one of two companies that exclusively focused on building and owning and catering to the life science industry. And um, after we bought the business, I think that um, a lot of people started to rethink some conventional notions of, of uh, how the industry was valued. And um, I think as has been proven out by the success of that investment, the world I think recognized what we recognized, which was um, the uh, incredibly strong um, supply demand fundamentals in these key research hubs that biomed was largely focused on. And obviously COVID comes around and that has only further accelerated the capital and the interest in the space. But it is, um, it's one of those mega themes like logistics that we try to identify um, and, and get ahead of and, um, and deploy a lot of capital into. And, and you know, the only, you know, our only wish is that we, we bought even more. Yeah. And, and thinking about just like that particular trend and that insight, I imagine a lot of why those hubs are kind of create that virtuous cycle of like talent and discovery and more talent and larger companies being developed in and around life sciences is because of talent, right? You, you, you can't virtualize a lab, right? You and I can't have a lab across, you know, 40 people's homes. It, it, it needs to be a central location. There's always a, a kind of physical instantiation of a company. How do you think that contrasts with traditional knowledge workers and what we think of as like office workers? Um, and, and I guess the question of just, what do you think happens to office? Like, do you think that we are going to virtualize a lot more than we have in the past? And what do you think the impact will then be on cities and office buildings? Sure. Well, I don't think anybody is debating the, that question in a life science context, as you noted, which is, which is a positive for biomed. The, the um, basic testing drug research has to happen in person. I think as it relates to more traditional office uses, it's, it's probably one of the most interesting conversations within real estate right now um, because we're all li we're living it. Um, I haven't been in our offices here in New York um, up until fairly recently. And I think companies are really trying to sort through what is the new modern work experience? What does that look like um, in COVID and on the back end of COVID? And I think what we're realizing is that there are a lot of functions that can be done without physically being in an office. I think I'm pretty proud of the job that our team did uh, in terms of not just kind of keeping the ship together during COVID, but actually being pretty entrepreneurial, pretty offensive um, while we were all in different locations. And I think that it's, um, it's, it's kind of the you know, $10,000 question right now, what does the demand for traditional office space look like on the back end of COVID? My personal view is that it really breaks down, I think, into two parts. If you think about why you go into an office, there is a utilitarian purpose, which is you've got Wi-Fi, you've got a quiet space to work, you've got a printer, um, you, can, you can get your work done. And that's one reason why office space exists. And there's another purpose, which is collaboration and the connective tissue of being in an office with your colleagues and your peers um, the combustion of ideas that comes out of conversations that you have grabbing a cup of coffee or going to lunch with peers, um, and the connectivity of having meetings in a central place and a central market. I, I, I think that um, 
the utility of office breaks down along those two lines. And I think what we've learned is that just getting work done can be done from uh, a lot of different places today. And um, it, it differs depending on what your own personal um, situation is. Um, you know, you ask anybody that's got a couple of young kids and they'll say, I absolutely need to get out of my house to be able to go get work done. Um, you know, for others, it, it's, you know, it's not as big of an issue. But I think the, the, the real question comes down to, can you replicate that type of collaboration, um, innovation and creativity and training for, for junior people on the team in a remote environment? And that's the harder question to answer, in my opinion. I, I think we've proven that there is technology that allows us to all be productive while not necessarily sitting in our offices doing the utilitarian part of our jobs. Um, I think the, the technology today is probably not as proven to necessarily be able to facilitate that type of collaboration um, and innovation that a physical environment can create. So my personal view is probably that um, I don't think the office business is dead. I think that there, um, you know, there had already been weakness for commodity office space even prior to COVID. I think that will continue to be weak. And the, the, the question is going to be, you know, are, are there companies that are able to <clears throat> thrive and maintain their very unique culture in a virtual environment? And I think some may be able to do that, but a lot I think are going to need physical space to be able to replicate that. And so um, I'm not in the camp that, you know, traditional office space is dead. But um, it definitely has its challenges here in the near term that could create investment opportunities. I think there are some markets that are more innovation centric, like the lab office business that I mentioned, where the, the need to be physically proximate to your peers is, is more important. And there's going to be other markets and other assets that, that is less so. And those will, be, those will be impacted accordingly. And it's interesting because there's, there's kind of a corollary with what happened maybe 10 years before in, in retail, right? When this term omnichannel kind of became or emerged as like the in vogue term. You have to be where your consumers are. Um, and it kind of dawned on people that, oh, I actually don't need to go to the store to buy a commodity good like a paper towel. I can just have my paper towels delivered through Amazon. But then the, the, what that did is kind of like put a greater importance on like what only retail can do, what you can only do in a physical space. You can only try on a shirt in a physical space. You can only have an experience in a physical space. So the concept of like lifestyle retail and immersive entertainment and kind of like stores being more thoughtful about how they design their stores as like brand marketing mechanisms, not just cash register mechanisms. And what's interesting is like, it feels like that's happening in office, right? Which is the kind of first order things like you described, having Wi-Fi, being able to work, having a quiet space, having a safe space. You can have that at home, but culture, development, mentorship, these are like higher order things that we're concerned about in knowledge workers that are much harder to cultivate. Um, and I agree with you. Like, I don't think Zoom is a replacement for an office building. Um, but I do think there's going to be this kind of blurry line, like much in the way we talked about with like ghost kitchens, it's going to start to get very blurry what companies look like from a real estate footprint standpoint. And like that could be more multinodal. That could mean not just one quarter, as many headquarters. Um, so it's interesting to think about that. I was curious when you mentioned that life sciences is a category that has to happen in a physical space, right? So the, the disruption of the lab by Zoom 
is not happening. Um, the same is probably true of content production, right? And I know that you just announced uh, a big partnership with Hudson Pacific, um, which is a huge vote of confidence and content is going to be produced. I'm curious if you could just explain the rationale behind that and how you thought about that. And in particular, how technology trends and obviously what Netflix is doing also influence that. Sure. Um, yeah, listen, along the same lines as what I mentioned in industrial and, and life sciences, <coughs> our, um, our investment or our partnership with HPP to recapitalize half of their film and studio business is really premised on the fact that content um, has to be filmed in a physical location. <coughs> Excuse me. Zoom won't, Zoom won't disrupt the movie studios. <laughs> you know, we, we all watch a lot of content remotely, but it is very difficult to film a movie with people in varied locations. Right. And so to that extent, when we had the opportunity to come in um, and recap 50% of Hudson's film and studio business that was concentrated in some of the best studio space in central Hollywood, we felt like it was another opportunity to get on the right side of technology and invest in real estate that could not be replicated virtually or, or otherwise. And, um, you know, I don't think anyone would question the just insatiable demand that people are having right now for content creation. And, you know, during COVID, if anything, the supply of that content has been depleted down as we have all, you know, watched too many shows and too many documentaries, et cetera, and movies. And our view is that, um, in addition to just the organic boom that is uh, underway for um, the, the creating content, there's going to be a big push once um, it's, uh, companies are able to safely shoot again to um, rebuild those content libraries. And um, it, it, there's, a, there's a short term, we think, rebound in content creation, but a longer term sustained boom. And um, the deal we did with, with Hudson Pacific the two biggest tenants are Netflix and Disney, um, two of the most prolific creators of content. And um, by focusing on LA, we wanted to focus on a market as well that had a long history of content creation with incredible barriers to entry and, um, and with a partner who's got deep relationships with tenants that are um, you know, at the tip of the spear um, in, uh, in terms of uh, the creation of that content. So you know, again, uh, it's not rocket science. It's kind of in some ways paying attention to all the things in our own personal lives that we're doing more of, um, you know, more shopping online, more reading online about new vaccines and new, you know, new drug research and treatments and when we're all going to be able to get vaccines. And, uh, and then, you know, thinking about the fact that we're all staring at our screens a little bit more and then thinking about what are the real estate corollaries to those and getting ahead of them. Yeah. I think it's so interesting just hearing how you and Blackstone just think about these kind of technology megatrends because you know, I love this phrase that like the U.S. economy happens indoors, right? We are an economy that happens indoors. It happens in physical space. And the real estate industry is really the industry of monetizing physical space. And so as you have these kind of collisions between these trends that it feels like COVID probably hasn't changed, but is merely just accelerated. In some ways, it just underscores the imperative to evaluate these technology trends and their long-term implications on real estate, which it sounds like informs all the investments we've talked about today, from industrial to life sciences to movie studios. You're, you're exactly right. It all goes back to where we started, which is re real estate is just the output. Um, you know, no one is, um, nobody builds real estate and hopes that a Netflix gets created. You know, no one builds a, a, a sound studio and hopes that 
you know, uh, you know, Hulu gets invented. It's, these are reactions uh, to technologies and the relative demand for each of these type of spaces will be heavily influenced by technology. And that's why, you know, our investment in VTS is not about us trying to become a venture firm and compete with the fifth walls of the world. It's really about trying to have our nose to the ground to understand what are the early warning signs of how there may be shifts in terms of or shifts or changes in demand for physical spaces and getting ahead of those being overweight, the type of space that will be bolstered by technology and be underweight, the type of physical spaces that will be impacted or disrupted by technology. And so we, um, you know, goes back to our core thesis. We're just real estate investors at the end of the day, trying to make money investing in physical spaces, but you have to have your nose to the ground and understand what's happening in the sort of emerging technology landscape to know how uh, these sectors and these geographies will be impacted. Well, it sounds like you're doing it the right way um, and very successful doing it. So um, it's always awesome to talk to you, Tyler. I think your, your holistic view of like sociology mixed with commercial real estate mixed with, mixed with technology megatrends clearly has led to great outcomes. Um, and I'm sure we'll see more of that. So thanks for all your insights today. Like I said, we try to keep it really simple. Just pay attention to what you're doing yourselves. And as the Amazon boxes pile up and as the Netflix shows pile up, we're just sort of on a very basic level trying to say, how does that translate into where we should be investing and deploying our capital? Yeah, well, awesome. Well, thanks, Tyler. All right, thanks, Brendan. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.